Yo, Taylor, super stoked to be listening to a new episode from you, man. Really, really enjoying it. And you said you like coming up with ways to respond to the stupid shit I say. You get to use your beat machine. You're welcome. So here's my conundrum. Here it is. In your conversation you're having with Jason, you mentioned that metagaming is using knowledge that the character wouldn't have to solve in-game problems. Here's my confusion. I have been told over and over and over again that's actually called player skill in that very narrow definition of player skill that's so often used which you don't seem to use because you just said that player skill or system mastery is part of player skill thank you very much um yeah that player skill is using real world knowledge to solve in-game problems that sounds an awful lot like metagaming is there a difference what's the difference i don't know help me obi-wan kenobi you're my only hope Welcome back to the Cleric Swear Ringmail Podcast. Thank you for your ears, thank you for your speakers, and thank you, Joe, for the call-in that started us off. At the top of the show, you heard Joe Richter of High and Sightless and Wheel or Woe fame asking a very important question. What is player skill versus what is metagaming? This is something that most referees have dealt with in their lifetime, so I figured it was too important for me to try to tackle by myself, and I have invited a very special guest who is very graciously agreed to help me tackle this problem. Tonight we have Mr. Rick Stump, whose campaign experience exceeds my life experience. Uh, welcome to the show, Rick. How are you doing tonight? Doing very well. Thank you for having me on. Yep. Awesome, awesome, always fun. We're gonna have to. We'll have to do it more often. I excited to uh, share the, share the air. Uh, I'm glad to be here. It's wonderful talking to you. We, we speak a lot on Discord, and I'm glad. I'm glad that you invited me on. It makes me feel good about myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So we'll we'll dive right on in. Um, uh, for for folks who are in the know, I figure anybody who's listening to my podcast has likely heard uh, Rick's podcast or seen his blog before. He is the mastermind behind the uh, Don't Split the Party blog and Harbinger Games, uh, which has uh, I'll put some links in the show notes to uh, to that. A lot of free product, a lot of cheap product, and uh, a lot of uh, interesting stuff that's worth worth taking your look at. Happy anniversary, by the way. For your, Thank you. Uh, 43 years. Yes, this last weekend was uh, 43 years since the founding of my AD&D First Edition campaign. And we celebrated with a session in Yashima, which is Japan land of my campaign. Um, and it was great fun was had by all and only two of the PCs died. Yeah, very good. <laughs> yep. Good <laughs> session. Sounds, sounds good to me. So based on that storied experience... What is, uh, we'll dive right in, what is your perspective on the difference between, in a game that kind of leans on player skill in a lot of ways, what is the mm -hmm. difference between a, a metagaming activity and something that's uh, player skillful? Absolutely. I, I'm going to give you a couple of anecdotes to illustrate this, and I think that that will really help clear this up. 
anecdote one, number one is an explanation and demonstration of player skill. This was in um, my campaign, Seaward, which I began in 1979. This occurred a few years ago. And the main party was a group of noblemen, which basically think my version of Cavalier, fighters, my version of Barbarian, wizards, just a general party with henchmen and some hirelings dealing with a large group of bandits. They had experienced, the players themselves had experience of what mass combat looks like, what mass cavalry charges look like, etc., and understand that they have to get advantage of terrain. So they waited until there was heavy rain. They used spells to confuse and confound the enemy and split the enemy groups into the enemy army into smaller groups and then attack them piecemeal. 20 or 30 player characters plus henchmen plus hirelings attacking 10 or 12 of the enemy at a time, fading into the heavy rain, coming in and out. So rather than facing 150 people at once, they're facing 10 at once 15 times. That's a wonderful example of player skill. Divide the enemy, move them around, use spells, use magic, use maneuver to attack the enemy one at a time. And I think that that uh, is very useful. People should think about that. How do we divide the enemy? How do we split them up? How do we confuse them in the game? But I also have a story about metagaming from the exact same set of players from two years before. They were in my, I call it a super dungeon because I'm, when I was uh, making this stuff, we didn't have the term Mega Dungeon. They were in my Super Dungeon, Skull Mountain, and they were fighting a group of bugbears. And at one point, they'd been fighting for a few minutes. I think it was five rounds. And one of the players said, well, I'm going to cast Magic Missile on that last bugbear. And another player said, no, 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 no. We know how many hit dice they have. We know how much hit damage we've done to them. He's only got one to three hit points left. A magic missile spell is a waste. Just use a dart or something. That's metagaming knowledge, right? The player characters inside the game might very well be clever enough to say, let's dig a ditch, let's lose, use illusions, let's build fires so it look like we've got 500 people rather than 100 people. That's something that you can do in real life. In real life, you have no idea that, for example, orcs are one hit dice. They can have no more than eight hit points. If I've done seven hit points to him, he's got no more than a point left. That's metagaming. And it's that's, a, and to me, a stark difference. I can, I can definitely see it. So regarding the mega dungeon, as I understand it, a mega dungeon is actually made out of uh, 1,024 kilo dungeons but you always lose just a little bit to the hardware. Right. You, you, you have to have a, a little buffer set aside for for the data and uh, making sure you know where to index the files. Absolutely right. Yep, just a little bit. Um, so, yeah. I like, I like cool. hearing about the weather. That's a great way to neutralize, uh, one, mm -hmm. the mobility of the enemy because if they can't see you or if uh, horses tend not to do well or as well in mediocre terrain as people do, and uh, using that environment, uh, using that uh, weather factor uh, to your advantage, that's a, that, that's a good story. I like, uh, I like hearing that kind well, of stuff. Yeah, interestingly enough, that's, that's actually is a perfect lead-in. There are many ways to prevent players from accidentally using meta-knowledge. 
meta knowledge is something that just exists. If you've been playing a role-playing game long enough, whether it's hero system where you know the enemy is going to have somewhere between 400 and 600 points, or ACKS, um, Alexander McCreese's really good system, or travel or anything else, there's no way you can't understand how the mechanics work. You can't. But there's certain things you can do to minimize metagaming. And one of them is, for example, wandering monsters. They may say, well, I've got this many spells per day, and we're going to this dungeon. I can plan ahead. Wandering monsters are going to throw a wrench into their planning for metagaming of the so many spells I have today. Whether I have a, a rather extensive weather charts and where I randomly determine the weather every game day means that they can't say, it's going to take us six days to get to the adventure site, therefore we need exactly this much food and water. What if the weather's bad? What if there's um, flooding? What if there's heavy rain? What if you're slowed down by winds? You have to prepare for these unexpected things with more food and water, etc. Um, You'd be adding that effort. Do, right, and, and just doing that, just making sure that little things like encumbrance, Wet, random weather patterns, random encounters. These things mean that the players can't count upon the knowledge of the monster manual and the mechanics to see them through. They never know. Well, I've got one magic missile left. We've had exactly three encounters. I know that we won't have any encounters today, so I'll use it again. Well, there's a random encounter, and the party's dead. And as in this case, how are we going to fight this army? We're going to wait till the weather's bad. And that's a forest multiplier, but it also means... If it was the other way around, well, we've got a larger army, we've got a smaller army. What if the enemy had waited until the weather was bad? And some of your metagaming gets mm -hmm. shot at. And that's a fun, uh, that's a fun uh, tide or table turner because they have to now think and leverage the uh, the player skill, the player, right, to try to ca to counter what the the enemy is th is throwing at them in the aforementioned poor weather scenario. Right, absolutely correct. It, it, it demands more player skill because of the randomness that resembles reality. I mean, one of the most famous real-life weather scenarios was during the Battle of the Bulge. The United States military in, in Europe at that time had total air supremacy, effectively, over the Germans. The weather was bad, and the Battle of the Bulge began, and the Germans were completely confounding Allied uh, offensive and forcing them back. Patton famously asked his chaplain to say a prayer for good weather because without air support, they didn't know how they were going to save the 101st. The weather cleared up, the tide of battle turned. That's an example from real life that explains how much these little random events can impact reality. So when those things affect your fantasy world, it's going to really reduce the ability of players to use metagaming and make them use more and more player skills so they don't even think about metagaming anymore. Absolutely. And one of uh, the one of the talking points uh, that led up to this call in, and that's, um, so this call, Joe may or may not actually remember mm -hmm. having sent it because I've, I have been sitting on it since <laughs> October of last year. <laughs> now, <laughs> well, you remember it. Well done, you. <laughs> yep. So I had to go back and uh, he'll, he'll remember now. But yeah, so one, one of the talking points was uh, a little bit about common common knowledge. How much mm -hmm. you mentioned players trying to use their monster manual, the scene uh, from the gamers to Darkness Rising. Uh, you, have you seen that one? 
Uh, it's been a little, I haven't I don't remember it very well. <laughs> There's that one scene <laughs> where they have the the power gamer metagamer, and he's got his sensei. Uh, he's reciting monster manual statistics, and if he gets it wrong, he gets a cane. <laughs> exactly. Well, let's turn this around. Let's turn this around. I have an article from my blog from gosh 2013. Uh, once upon a time, I had the privilege of playing co-DMing with Lou Pulsifer, who, if you're unaware, is one of the He's probably the greatest living game designer, right? He was the first person to come up with alternate rules for diplomacy back in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, the first uh, game magazine that Gygax sent a note of, we've got this new game, we call it D&D, was sent to him. At one point, he was a, an editor for White Dwarf Dragon Magazine, a strategic gamer at the same time. I mean, on and on and on. This guy is a legend. And when I was a very young man in my early 20s, I had the chance to not only play this campaign, but Cody M so that he was playing in my campaign, which was an amazing experience when you're a 20 to 27-year-old guy. But at one point, he simply asked us a very straightforward question. How would your character, who's never encountered this creature, know that? And what we came up with in-game, me and a couple of the players, let's see, it was Keith Kolosinski, John LaFoon, uh, another John who, I'm so sorry I forget his last name because it's been almost 40 years, uh, all came up with this idea. Has it been 40 years? Goodness gracious. <laughs> and we created this concept called the Illustrative Lectures. And it became the Wonderfully Illustrative Lectures where if a particular player character encountered, say, an executioner's hood or a fire drake or something, they would write it down and they would go in and then other player characters could pay 50 gold pieces to attend the lecture and get a briefing about what they saw. Well, we would encounter an executioner's hood. We found out that if you pour brandy on it, it will fall off. And everyone would spend their gold pieces and write down... We, we use strict timekeeping, of course. We've, we've always used strict timekeeping, training times, etc. But I took a week and I attended five lectures, so I, now I know the weaknesses of Executioner's Hoods and Fire Friends and Verbeek, etc. And we can say, well, I know this because I attended the lectures. And he thought that was both the most annoying and funniest thing he'd seen in years. So you can start talking about this, and this leads to campaign development. You've actually got guys saying, oh, uh, yeah, for a price, I'll tell you exactly how you can, uh, which creatures are vulnerable to silver and which are vulnerable to cold iron, etc. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that led to a lot of fun in game. And at the same time, another thing that I do, and my players will tell you that they hate it, is I make sure that there's a difference between in my campaign, between rumor and reality. And I think the one that shocked everyone the most is I have a few custom spells in my campaign. Um, one of the great villains in my campaign was the Red Maiden, who bedeviled players for literally 30 real years. Real years times 30 years the Red Maiden or the Monster Master on a giant owl riding back and forth across the mountains. Terrified everybody. Most player characters would run when they saw her. Eventually, one of the parties figured out that it was a Rakshasa covered by illusions. They're like, oh, we got it. We got it. We're going to get a crossbow. We're going to get some blessed bolts. We're up there, and we're going to shoot her. And they fired it. 
and they sh- they hit her with a blessed crossbow bolt. She tore it out and then killed the party. Total party killed, TPK. Because I very carefully, the background had said, it's not blessed bolts that kill Rakshasa. That's a rumor. It's consecrated bolts that kill a Rakshasa when they hit. Nice. And that's another way that... Right, and that's another way that game masters can make sure that metagaming doesn't go out of hand. One or two little changes. Yes, the, mm-hmm. the old wives' tales and the common wisdom are that, let's say, vampires are killed by a wooden stake in their heart. Well, you can say, no, that's not true. I've seen my Hammer horror films. I've read... That just paralyzes them. It doesn't kill them. They are killed by fire and silver, etc. And you... With a few little changes, you can keep it internally consistent in your campaign and make it so players can never say, well, I read the Monster Manual 2, so I know exactly what's going on, and it's still, quote-unquote, fair. So, yeah, definitely thinking about... Uh, we've heard, uh, we've all heard of uh, Dr. Dungeon Master. This is definitely Professor Dungeon Master doing the, doing the lecture hall on uh, monster knowledge there. <laughs> Absolutely, and, and the thing is, it doesn't make sense. In reality, you know, universities sprang up well before the period of time most fantasy campaigns are set. I find most fantasy campaigns are roughly the 15th century. So the idea that there's a, a guy or a team of people making money off lecturing about how to fight monsters is no different than the fact that there used to be fencing schools and war schools and navigation schools in the, in the uh, medieval world. Sure, why not? Yep, and that that kind of fits in too with the training in AD and D. Now I'm right. I'm more of a basic line fellow. I'm not as versed in AD and D as I should be. But the the understanding I got is it kind of it kind of produces the sort of guild or uh, mm-hmm. school setup. You at least have a mentor apprentice concept until characters higher level. Absolutely. So you you have a conduit where you can explain how do you know that right. And it's fun. It's fun. You mention uh, wives' tales and rumors. In in my home games, I tend to like to do rumors at uh, a third, a third, a third. A third of the rumors they hear are true. A third of the rumors are partially true, so uh, not not exactly true, but close. And uh, a third of the rumors are false. And so typically, I'd only applied that to. Uh, adventure hooks like uh, there's a oh there's a holy avenger at the bottom of this abandoned cathedral that mm, it, if we say it's partially true maybe it's not quite a holy avenger maybe it's a a magic shield that was attributed to a, a paladin type something like that or if it's totally false the the place has been uh, desecrated and they wasted their time but there's there's an adventure to be had anyway um, so I've used that concept with adventure hooks, but I've never, I'd never thought to use it and apply it, uh, for, at least from a cognitive perspective, towards common, common monster knowledge. Because one of the arguments I had made a year ago uh, in, in call-ins or on Discord regarding some common monster, it's uh, trolls and fire. Everyone in their grandma knows trolls and fire. Uh, whether they've read Three Hearts and Three Lions or not. Honestly, I think more people probably learned it from D&D than they did from Paul Anderson. <laughs> uh, but, <Right. laughs> oh, without doubt. And But be- because that's so ubiquitous, because that's so uh, ingrained in the D&D culture, uh, Trolls and Fire, a lot of the time, I don't even worry about it. Uh, like if, if someone tries to light a troll on fire and it's how would you know that, it's 
that kind of stuff is mm-hmm. is people tell stories about it at night. It's kind of like the the trolls in right. the trolls in Tolkien, Tolkien are a little different. They turn to stone in in broad daylight and. Also, a Paul Anderson commonality. Uh, Paul Anderson hill giants turn to stone in the daylight, but I digress. Um, that kind of knowledge would be a little less common uh, and a little less prolific among the players. But then certain things like the troll in the fire is very, very common. So how much, how much of that is common in world? As well, how much of this right? Is... How, how much of this is folk tales and old wives' tales, and how much of this is hidden knowledge can be very, mm-hmm. very interesting. Now, one thing um, in first edition, I'm not sure if you're aware of it, but they have the spy table, so you can talk about how assassins can do spying and this that, and the other. Mm-hmm. Well, I expanded that, and one of the things that I think you can see there's too is spreading rumors. I have a rumor mongering ability for some people. Mm-hmm. What if you've got a villain who is, let's say, a monster made of two shade, a villain or hero, let's say a villain, and he just starts paying people to spread the rumor that shades are harmed by red light, right? So you can even do things like go out and every, just tell players, oh, everyone knows that if you shine a red light on a shade, it destroys them. Little things like that... I like, I love, I'm probably going to uh, consciously steal your one-third, one-third, one-third. What do you do when the enemy is purposely misleading the player character, actively spreading rumors that aren't true? You can do all sorts of stuff, like a circle of salt will stop a ghast is a rumor spread by a necromancer. Mm-hmm. Who has ghasts in his wow. employ. <laughs> Who, who's got ghasts? Oh, I'm going to put up a circle of salt. Well, good luck to you, you're going to die. And there's a bunch of little things you can do like that. Um, and because it makes sense. Remember, um, I, I have a, a theory that I call psychotronic theory. And it's the things that make up a good game, whether it's D&D or Traveler or whatever. And one of the things I aim for is inside the universe is verisimilitude. It makes sense in the universe. If the players can do stuff like do research, consult sages, and spread false rumors, so can the villains. And this is yet another way of really confounding metagaming so that you don't know what's going on. I think the the best example I ever saw from a player was from John Groth, who was my roommate at the time back in the uh, 90s. Wonderful fellow. And he had a character who was called Victor the um, Conjurer. And Victor the Conjurer quickly revealed himself to be Victor the Necromancer. He wore all black. He wore a black face mask. Uh, he had an all black dagger. He had a servant. And he was constantly going around with dead bodies in a cart and this, that, and the other. And when he, in combat, Victor the Conjurer, then Victor the Necromancer, would summon shadows and ghosts and skeletons. Um, he'd have the cart along with him and he'd animate him and the zombies would shuffle after you, etc. Very effective. His character was an illusionist. So none of it uh, none I, of it was real. It just relied on the... None of it was real. He really... It was just slight of... It was literally illusion spells and similar things he used to convince the enemy. So you end up with the enemy, okay, we're going to get a couple clerics 
and we're going to be ready to turn undead, and this is going to be great. We're going to stomp these undead. We've got this set. And this quote-unquote skeletons would ignore the turn attempts. One or two of them would run away. He was careful to have one or two get quote-unquote turned, but he continued to attack because he was an illusionist. Um, and, you know, misdirection again. I saw a player character do this, and I'm like, holy simoleus, why didn't I ever think of this for one of my villains? You know, an illusionist who calls himself, you know, um, the greatest necromancer who ever lived, or a demon summoner or something, that makes great sense. Why would you announce that you're an illusionist? You'd announce yourself as something else. Nope, you announce and again, this is just going to just eat into that metagaming, so it just doesn't work. I thought that uh, I thought that an iron ring with protection of evil keep those gas from attacking. Well, it wasn't a gas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> was it a gas, and uh, was it uh, actually iron? And is iron the real thing? And it's funny you mentioned. Right, yeah, it's funny you mentioned player behavior. Player behavior is the best inspiration to kill other parties with. <laughs> oh, absolutely! You know, I've, I've been blessed to have. Hundreds of really good players in my campaigns. I've learned so much from them. John Groth and uh, Victor, for example. Um, all of my current... I, I actually have to say that uh, my... The longest player tenure is Jennifer, and she's a straight fighter player. She loves the whole standing with a pile of bodies, killing more people thing. But she's had so many really subtle tricks, like um, her paladins... She had a she had a paladin who, again, dressed all in black, had the hooded cloak, sat in the corner brooding, etc. And they were lawful good. They just weren't. Hi, I'm wearing all shiny armor. Everything else. They were hunting undead. They're undead destroyers, and they and they were obsessed with the idea of how dangerous undead were to people. Yep. So she came across as sort of a. It, it was very similar to, and, I, and she admitted later she didn't mean it, came across like Strider from Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. The townsfolk didn't trust Strider. He's this weird guy that comes into the wilderness and sits in the corner brooding and drinks beer and vanishes again. But he's the king of mankind. And her character, Gabrielle, came across as this obsessive, dark, brooding figure who would come in covered in wounds and once she was healed, go back out. But she was a paladin was fighting evil and again that made me really realize what are you going to do so I think that my most popular villain of all time I say popular advisedly is a character named Starbinder Starbinder is a charming handsome guy he's a third 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 cleric magic user thief he doesn't have very many magic items and he is so hated that when Lou Pulsifer's characters finally caught up with him, they cut his body into six pieces, <laughs> burned them separately, and scattered the ashes separately so he could never come back. <laughs> Why? Because he was clever. I'm going to get this guy alone, a henchman of the character, and cast Charm Person on them, and then forget from a scroll, and then forget from a spell so they forget they're charmed, work my way in. Not high level, not tough, but kept just, oh, I stole a thousand gold pieces here. I stole your horses here. Or you're in the dungeon. I came in and cleared out your camp. All the tiny little things. <laughs> and they were really expecting Starbinder to be, you know, the, the BBEG, the big bad evil guy, some horrible. 
No, he's just he was a little punk with a 16 intelligence and a 15 charisma. So they're expecting this big blowout fight with hundreds of retainers, and he's got a vorpal sword. And no, he's the equivalent of a fifth level guy. He's just smart. <laughs> yeah, he uses and that's another the, way you can really. Yeah, he just he was just clever. And that's another way you can throw off metagaming. Well, the person who's been confounding us for the last three levels has to be big and power. No, what if it's just a third level magic user with message and invisibility who's really smart and can bribe people? Things like that can really throw people for a loop. And it can prolong their uh, their machinations because your your party will spend extra resources and extra time trying to prepare for a situation that uh, can't arise. Absolutely, absolutely, and frankly, I think that. Too often, and I'm, I'm putting myself in this group, too often our solutions to dealing with a party is brute force. Subtlety, the players use subtlety a lot. At least the best players use subtlety a lot. So, so should the villains. And when you're using subtlety and planning and tricks, that really, again, metagaming knowledge can't help you. You've got you've to use player skill to confound this sort of stuff. And again, a lot of the time, that's going to be situational. Uh, you described yep. you described going after their uh, their camp while they were out of said camp. There's there's no there's no metagame way to to predict or counter that. You have to actively play or skill your way out of that kind of an event. Absolutely. Um, I'll be honest with you right now. I think that um, right now I have my main group of players who are in person players, but I also do Discord. Some of my patrons. I have a patron. Some of my patrons are playing online and they're in the midst of something and they've learned. They've learned quickly. You leave henchmen and hirelings behind, at least hirelings behind, to guard the camp. Um, here, here's actually an anti or a negative metagame thing that I've noticed over the years. A lot of players treat horses like bicycles, right? Mm -hmm. In game, they get on their horse, they ride their horse to the dungeon. They lock their horse into the horse stall outside the dungeon. They go in the dungeon. And I, and I remember watching it. It wasn't my party. I was visiting a friend of mine ages ago. And they're like, oh, we're going to be in the dungeon for three days. I'm like, what do you do with the horses? Like, oh, we're just going to let them graze. You're on a mountainside. Shouldn't you have some grain and you should have a hostler? What happens if a, an orc comes along and steals them all? They're like, oh, that never happens. Use metagame to make the players nervous. What I mean by metagame here is just remember random encounters, weather charts. If they just leave their horses outside the dungeon, go in and they don't leave anybody behind, they're going to come back and no horses more often than not. And that's rules written because you're going you're gonna to have yeah. encounters come up. So that's not even... That's not even being inventive to thwart the player. That's, oh, no. no that's that's rules is written. Read the, that's just read the book and realize that it works... It works for the dungeon master, the game master, at least as much as it does for the players. And pretty soon you're going to have players where they're actually not metagaming with player skills, setting up good defensible armed camps with supplies, falling back, staging camps. And again, this starts to erase metagaming and turn into player skill real fast because it doesn't matter if you're attacked by kobolds with you know, one day with half a hit die, or trolls, if you've got to have the camp prepared, and they stop thinking about how do I use the system to gain this encounter, 
and go back to how do I in the universe in a very similitudinous manner deal with potential threats. Um, again, randomness is the friend of player skill and the enemy of metagaming. I'm still thinking a little bit about that red lights killing shades rumor because I'm, I'm <laughs> I may have told my son that flashlights scare ghosts away. My uh, my younger twin, who is three, he ran in. Um, he has two settings: off and turbo. And so I was. Uh, I was oh, sorry. I got a kid like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he had. Um, he he. It it was like maybe two days ago where I was trying. I get up early to try to do the elliptical uh, and do a little exercise before anybody else wakes up. Yep. Otherwise, I don't get it done. So I hear a door open, and then I hear sprinting noises. I'm like, okay, I know who's coming. And uh, he, he tells me very uh, assertively that there's a ghost in, in the guest bedroom. And so we have to go investigate. And there's a uh, – his mother has put some clothing that's too small for them in grocery bags, plastic bags, because we're going to give it to oh. – so we're because we're going to give it to her sister who had a baby recently, and um, right. No, no, that's a ghost. And I said, I know what we will do. We can oh. use a flashlight because ghosts are afraid of the light. And so we shined my flashlight on the on the uh, tr- uh, trash bag full of child clothing, and he was like, the ghost is scared away. And then he went back and watched television or something. But <laughs> so I. Oh, made- the thing is. They, you know, your son will tell the kids, no, 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 ghosts are afraid of my life. Do a flashlight. And that's how this stuff starts. I mean, I think that Nukalevi's, oh, uh, go down, down by the river, and the Nukalevi will suck you in. At one point, that was a grandma saying, don't go by the river, you're drowned, right? Mm-hmm. So that's a perfect example of exactly what we're talking about. And that will happen inside a very similar to this universe that exists, the game world if it is internally consistent, will generate these sorts of stories just like real life. Absolutely. That's a perfect example. Yep, and if my if my son loses his first character to a ghost encounter, then he can blame me. <laughs> Absolutely, of course. And of course, you know, there's always the other thing too, um, which is I encourage every game master to make original content. Monsters spells, magic items, classes, everything. One of my favorite examples um, was, it was 1987. It was Charles Ranta, Lou Pulsifer, Sue Pulsifer, who, by the way, Sue Pulsifer is the best player of D&D clerics I've ever met, and that includes my wife, who's the second best. Marty Richmond and Noah's Jones, the other person coming to be the second, and they were in Seaward, in the north, and they're like, oh, look, it's a bunch of zombies. We'll go in and, and kill them. And they swept in. They looked just like zombies. They actually just like zombies. And the last two survivors of the party and the henchmen, that was a henchman in one PC, were able to drag the bodies of the dead away because they weren't zombies. They were frost zombies, an original creation that I had made that are much tougher than your standard zombie. Um, and... They were always like, oh, that was, the player reaction was, that was great. Something we'd never heard of before, something we'd never seen before. We went in there just cocksure that a bunch of football guys were going to walk all over this, and we barely got away. They were pumped. And the fact of the matter is, is a lot of players, I'd say, I'd say the vast majority of players don't like to metagame. 
they stumble into it. It becomes something they do. They want to be surprised. They want to see new things. They want to use their actual player skill and their intelligence rather than, well, it's a hobgoblin and we've done seven points. You can't have more than two more hit points to waste a magic missile on them. They'll do it, and they'll do it instinctively, but they would far prefer to be surprised and have to use their wits and their skill to prevail. Because in the end, we play role-playing games not to be an accountant. We play role-playing games to be heroes. And player skill and ingenuity is being a hero. And I think that um, randomness, creativity, everything, this stuff is is important to us. And as a game master, just remember, it's important to the players because it's going to help the players feel like heroes. Yep, it absolutely does. And when when you figure something out as a player or when you encounter something new and work your way through it, that gives you a sense of satisfaction as a player that wow. this is you. Because yeah. if, if you have a dice roll and the dice roll tells you you win, then it was chance. You just rolled the dice and whoop-de-doo. But if, if there was legitimate thought in it if there was a strategy that was put in that went sideways but then you countered it and you came out on top that's something your players will remember and that's something that i as a player have remembered if i am responsible yep if i'm responsible player if if player skill leads to a positive resolution then the player can beam about how that how that was their story that was their spotlight and that that that's where Absolutely. that's where you talk about winning at D and D. That's winning at D and D is when you can when Absolutely. you overcome by the by your wits uh, rather than rather than luck. I agree. I, there's nothing I can say to agree with you more. That's absolutely correct. Players really, in my opinion, don't want to meet again. They want to just use players' killer wits, and everything we can do as game masters to encourage that they're going to love. Absolutely. So. In turn, you mentioned uh, that's important for a role-playing game. So, in other types of games that are, I guess, role-playing adjacent. So you have your your D and Ds and your uh, your your travelers or your BRPs of the world, and then you have then you have a role-playing adjacent. So stuff like. Uh, Defenders of the Realm, stuff like uh, Talisman, in a way, stuff like, uh, what's the one? Gloomhaven is the newest one. Uh, A friend of mine who, uh, a friend of mine who brought his original Holmes Basic dice set to play with us one day. That was pretty cool. Um, He he got me, yeah, he got he got big into Gloomhaven. Um, If you're listening, Jeff, uh, good, uh, good on you. I miss, I miss our uh, DCC sessions. But um, <laughs> but anyway, so those kind of games, there's less of the skill involved, but it's also more of a framework. The objective is, is kind of different. And where this is going is one of the, the, the whole player skill versus, and there was a little talk about system mastery, how much is, is system mastery metagame versus how much is of system mastery is is player skill and uh, Joe sure. and Joe runs a bunch of Pathfinder or at the time had been running a bunch of Pathfinder and Pathfinder is different from uh, OSR or old school type games because part of the game is 
the build game. Part of the game is figuring out what player abilities complement each other. And at the time, I made the argument that in that context, player skill includes some element of system mastery. So you, there's the uh, part of the game is building, and while that's true in Pathfinder in three five, it's not. It's it wouldn't be true in other games. Like if we were playing um, Labyrinth Lord, for example, or AD and D, that same that's exact same behavior would not uh, be player skill because it's not part of the intended experience. Yeah, that's just fascinating. It's fascinating insight. Um, I'll be honest with you. My first blush, which is probably incorrect, is to um, agree with you and then expand. Um, and that is this. I think that one of the most interesting games when it comes to system mastery is Hero Systems. Hmm. I've been playing Champions, which is Hero System, since it came out in, what, 81. And to make, to be clear, I once on a Greyhound bus going from... Um, Goodfellow Air Force Base in Texas to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, taught a 14-year-old girl and a 27-year-old boy and the girl's 54-year-old um, great aunt, uh, aunt, excuse me, aunt to play champions, and we did heroes, and we played the entire bus ride, which was amazing fun. <laughs> to really make a character, you have to have the skills of an accountant and a computer calculator. I mean, uh, don't get me wrong, I can sit you down and we can play superhero games in 15 minutes with champions with an experienced player. But my Atlantaverse players who have been going on for over a decade, um, these are guys who literally, I don't know anyone who matches uh, game knowledge and their players, the characters are better because of it. So yes, System mastery is something that has to happen. It has to exist in a wide range of games, including some straight, quote-unquote, straight role-playing games. Um, Villains and Vigilantes is similar to, in that way. Um, Aftermath, if any of you guys are old school enough to remember Fantasy Games Unlimited, Aftermath is a game where if you don't have system mastery, you can't even make a basic character. But man, is it worth it. Such an amazing system. So yes, I think that system mastery can be an integral part of RPG adjacent and RPG games. But I would argue that may that may not be actual metagaming. Because the difference there is and I'm this is something I'm like I'm uh, just taking my thoughts out loud. I'm discovering this as I go. Um, I do that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so do I. So do I. Um, if you're playing if you're playing a third edition, which I ran, I ran a third edition campaign for about eight years. It was a ton of fun. If you don't know where you're going, it's almost impossible to make a character that makes any sense. And you know what I mean by that? What feats am I going? What prestige classes am I going for? Um, mm -hmm. This, that, and the other. Um, Champions is the same way. Uh, how do I build this power? How do I make this work? And um, these things can be really, really critically important. I don't know if that's metagaming. I think that may just, may just be that the differences between, again, I'm, I'm flattering here, 
sorts of games. AD&D, in my opinion, is up there with just a handful of other games where if you're a newbie, you can end five to seven throwing dice, being a character, and then you can tell them, oh, uh, you're Roland from the Matter of France. You're Aragorn from Lord of the Rings. You're Merlin from King Arthur. Go. And be like, oh, yeah, I got it. Let's go. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, you compare that with, like, Cyberpunk. And it's, it's Cyberpunk 2077, the various versions that you got going there. You know, like, oh, well, you're Neo from the Matrix. Maybe, kind of. Yeah, my, uh, my experience with Shadowrun comes to mind. A friend of mine had run yeah, Shadowrun. Shadowrun when I was in college. Uh, I made a I made a psychic based off of Miss Cleo. That campaign. You know what? I <laughs> want to I want to come back on and do another separate podcast just to hear that story because that's that's money. Um, there's a there's a fair number of games where you just sit down and say, and uh, Marvel and DC heroes are like that. Oh, you're Spider Man. You're Superman. But there's a fair number of games where you have to have system mastery to make a coherent right. character. And I don't know if that's metagaming. And I think that what I find as I sit here and think about it is while I've been running AD&D 1st and 2nd edition for 43 and what is it, 35 years respectively, something crazy like that, my favorite role-playing game is Rollmaster. Um, and the game that we have the most players and the most characters in is Hero System 6th Edition Champions. Those are really crunchy games where if you don't have System Mastery, it's actually kind of hard to play. I think that, I think that we, what we're talking about is, and I'm really taking a long time to get here, and I apologize for dragging this podcast out for an extra hour, <laughs> is player skill can apply to the system as much as it can to play, and it's still not metagaming, right? The fact that a really good Pathfinder player, and I know some great Pathfinder players, really has to understand the system to play Pathfinder is just more skill for the player. Because it's, that skill is not being applied to specific encounters to swing it in your favor, etc. Same with champions. My son, Nicholas, who is a card-carrying genius, has a hero where the one power description is literally 135 words. And for all you champions players out there, half of you are saying, what? And half are saying, oh, he's a piker. <laughs> but what that means is he's not winning or losing encounters by saying, and I know exactly how this die six is going to work. It's just player skill and knowledge inside the system. So I'm glad you brought that up because, man, i got like three blog posts and two podcasts about that. That's, that's good stuff. Thank you. Nice. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to help. I'm excited to, excited to contribute to the, the thought pool. <laughs> without, without well, having... listen, I, I, it wasn't that long ago you, you joined my Discord recently and Vice University. You know, you've got such keen insight. It's just a, it's just a joy to uh, converse with you, and I really appreciate you having me on your podcast tonight. I I appreciate you being on. I uh, thank you for spending the uh, evening with me. Thank you for uh, sure. hanging out. Uh, we'll definitely have you back. I'll come up with some more cool call-ins, and uh, we'll, we'll dive into it. Um, and I will tell you the impetus. Now that now that we've talked about it, I'm remembering the impetus for this whole thing. It actually started sure. uh, on Joe Richter's podcast because 
he was oh yeah he was playing in a Pathfinder game and one of the he was playing and there was an, a very experienced very tactical minded player and then there was a newbie someone who'd never played before or who was new to the new to the system or new to the hobby and during a combat sequence uh, Pathfinder using individual initiative the person the power gamer player who is more experienced told the uh, newbie who was going to attack one of the enemies oh, oh wait 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 you don't want to attack that one you want to attack this one because that one has already gone on the initiative order and if you attack this one we're going uh, we can take it out and deny the attack economy for the the opposite side oh oh yeah See, that is that is very starkly the difference between player skill and metagaming. Look at that. That's one of the best examples ever. Yeah. Yeah, and that pushed my buttons on another. And I think in his big thing too, uh, and and I think he and I were in agreement. That pushed my buttons on player autonomy. Is uh, if if someone tells me how to play my character when I think I have an idea of what I want to do with my character, I have a very bad habit of amending my behavior just to thwart what I was told to do. <laughs> now, I'm not saying that I've actually killed the characters of people who try to demand that I might play a character do certain things, but I'm not denying it either. <laughs> not denying that they <laughs> might have come across some falling rocks. Yes. Uh, Yep, that lightning bolt was on the weather table. See, it's right here. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Sorry. It's not my fault. I was having a bad day. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Great story. Yeah, great story. Great podcast. Um, th again, thank you for coming on. It was great uh, to spend the last 45 minutes or so with you. And we hit that nail on the head, Joe. I hope that answers your question. And I hope the uh, question at the beginning can uh, refresh your memory as to why you asked. <laughs> I, apologize. Yeah, I do apologize for holding on to that voicemail for so long. It's just like I said, I think that this was a good, um, this was a good topic and I wanted to treat it right. So thank you, sir, uh, for helping me to do that. Absolutely. Thank you, Joe, for the question. And thank you so much for having me on. It means a ton. Yeah. Thanks. All right, stay stay blessed, friend, and between now and when we get to talk again, delve on. Delve on. Square Ring Mail Podcast is an independently owned and operated product released for educational and informative purposes under the Totally Steal This license, which is kind of like Creative Commons, except for licensing. Segments recorded within a vehicle are recorded using a Bluetooth hands-free device in conjunction with local vehicular safety legislation. The music for the Clear Square Ring Mail Podcast is Gold Coffee by Michael Ramirez C, retrieved from Mixkit.co and used under the Mixkit royalty-free music license. Sound effects used in the Clear Square Ring Mail Podcast are also retrieved from Mixkit.co and used in accordance with the Mixkit free sound effects license. Clear Square Ring Mail does not ascribe to nor endorse views or opinions expressed by call-ins, guests, or even the host, unless you think they're awesome, and thus does not assume any liability regarding the consumption or distribution of this podcast. By listening to the Clear Square Ring Mail Podcast, you agree to these provided terms. Parties with questions regarding these terms, conditions, or releases are encouraged to reach out to Clear Square at the prescribed methods provided on the Clear Square email blog. Parties dissatisfied with these terms, conditions, or releases are encouraged to go suck an egg.